We ready? Okay, today is August the 31st, the last month of August, last day of August, excuse me. And we'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the opportunity to name privately to God the Father and the unconfessed sins. If necessary, let us pray. Father, thank you for this time you've given us so that we can do the most important thing in our life, which is to grow in grace and knowledge. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace system of perception, for giving us the time uh, to be here, uh, this church, the Bible, everything that's necessary you have provided. So we pray that you will help us to concentrate so that we will be able to better understand the great promises that you have given in your word. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I thought I'd start out tonight. Um, probably most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with this, but there might be people who are on the Internet that may need this as a support to kind of figure out what we've been talking about. This is the, probably the most simple diagram here of dispensations. Dispensations is simply God dealing with mankind in a particular fashion. What we have on the board is a timeline. It starts in eternity past. Here's eternity past. And it ends with eternity future over here. And God has divided time into different sections whereby he deals with mankind in a particular way. It's an akoinomia is the Greek word for it. It's a stewardship. And we start with the age of the Gentiles here, which lasted about 2,000 years. And during that time you had the patriarchs. And one thing that distinguishes this in green here, the age of the Gentiles, from the age of the Jews is because, of course, there were no Jews until Abraham. There were no Hebrews. And so the Hebrew people did not exist until, uh, at least the Jewish race did not exist until Abraham. And then during Moses' time, God gave them uh, the law. That would be over here. And none of this happened during the age of the Gentiles. About 2,000 years. Then you get into the age of the Jews. And God gave Moses the law. Abraham was given unconditional promises. Very distinctive age. And that carries over all the way over past the cross. So that means even though the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right in this area, were still in the Jewish age. Because Jesus Christ was crucified and it was still the age of the Jews. It was about, well, it was 50 days after Christ rose from the grave that we started a new age, which is the church age, the age in which we're in now. It's distinctly different than the age of the Gentiles or the age of the Jews. Uh, first of all, we have, uh, we're not under the Mosaic law. We're under a higher law. We're under a spiritual law. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
We are priests. Every one of us, even women, are priests. Our own individual priests. And we don't go to a priest. We are a priest. To reach God the Father, we go through our mediator, our high priest, which is Jesus Christ. I was teaching the young folks not long ago. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Because we go through Jesus Christ to get to the God the Father. We don't have to go to an earthly priest. And there are some who still think you need to do that, but they are in error. So we're in the church age now, and this was a mystery. No one in the Old Testament, you could go throughout the Old Testament, and you're not going to find anything about the church because they didn't even know it was going to exist. And it was hard for the disciples when, when the Gospels were written right along in here <clears throat> during, the first, uh, during the incarnation of Christ. It was hard for them to understand some of the things that Christ said because uh, Jesus gave certain hints about an age that was coming, about certain things that would happen, but they had no frame of reference for it. Remember when we were looking at John chapter 14 and Jesus was telling the disciples, if I go away, I will return to receive you so that where I am, you may be also. They didn't, have a, they didn't know where he was going. They didn't understand essentially what he meant when he was coming back. Those details are not given until you get into the, the Pauline epistles and you get into 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. They give the details then. But when they were still in the Jewish age under the Mosaic law, for 2,000 years, plus or minus, they had been under the Mosaic law. And it was very difficult, even for Peter. I remember God was trying to train Peter that there had been a transitional period. This is in the book of Acts. And he told Peter uh, there, there was a vision of this sheet coming down out of heaven with a lot of food on it. It was unclean food. You see, part of the, the Jewish, under the Mosaic law, there was dietary laws, and they could only eat what was called or determined clean food. And things that were on that sheet were not clean food. And you had Jesus Christ telling uh, Peter, eat, take this and eat it. This is a command from the creator of the universe. And you know what Peter said? Forbid it, Lord, that I would eat anything unclean. Now, Peter, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I don't think it's too wise when the creator of the universe tells you to do something and you say, I don't think so. But uh, anyway, this was another way that Christ was trying to prepare these disciples for what was going to occur very shortly, the church age. And you see that this is in red. Now, we don't know how long the church age is going to last, but we do know how it's going to end. It's going to end by Jesus Christ returning in the clouds, and we're going to meet him. The dead are going to rise, those who are alive are going to be translated. I'll get into that more after, after a while, about the, your, your bodies are going to be instantly transformed from a body that is a mortal body into an immortal body, a resurrection body. And what we've been talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to a large degree is when is this going to happen? It, it, should this red line here go all the way over here, maybe about halfway into this next one? When did this happen? This is very important for us to understand. The Bible's clear, and there's a lot of information about the 
the timing of the rapture and promises given to the church age believers, which we're getting into in chapter 5, is all through 1 Thessalonians, that the church is not going to go into this last seven years here. Now, you'll notice that the age of the Jews here is in blue and the tribulation over here is in blue. And that's because the church age interrupted the age of the Jews. They didn't know what was going to happen. It was a mystery. It's called an intercalation. <clears throat> so it was just put on hold. And this is after Christ was, was crucified and Pentecost began, uh, began. The last seven years of the tribulation of the Jewish age is yet to occur. If you want to find where do you get that? Well, you go to Daniel chapter 9. And it's called Daniel's 70th week. And when you look at Daniel, the, the Jews had, or the Israelites had gone into captivity. And they were going to be there for, uh, you remember how long they were going to be there? Seventy years. Seventy years. That's how many uh, sabbatical years that they missed. And they had already, in that 70-year period, I mean, they, they missed 70 Sabbaths, but they missed 70 Sabbaths over a 490-year period. And after 490 years of disobedience, God said, I'm going to drop the hammer. And so, sure enough, they were taken into captivity. And what amounted to, God says, you're going to take that sabbatical year. You could have had it in blessing. You could have trusted me and you wouldn't have had to gone into captivity. And you had great blessing, but you refused to obey me. So you're going to get the 70 years, but you're not going to get them in your own country. And it's not going to be blessing. You're going to get them over in uh, Babylon. And so sure enough, there they go. They're there for 70 years. And at the end of that period, Daniel was wondering, okay, does God have anything else for the Jews? I mean, after all, the, the 483 years had already, uh, uh, well, when the, the, um, the prophecy was that they were going to have another 490 years. And it was going to start with the decree from Artaxerxes Lagemanus in Nehemiah chapter 2. And what, what I'm saying is that reads us all the way in to the, to the point to where um, Jesus Christ was going to come 483 years after they were in captivity. Sure, I mean, after the decree from uh, Artaxerxes, Jesus Christ came, he was, he was crucified, and then he was buried, and then he rose again. Forty days after he rose, Pentecost began, and here we have the church age. But that left another seven years left of what the angel Gabriel had told Daniel. He said, uh, Daniel said, is there any more time left? He's in, and uh, Gabriel said, yes, there's going to be another 490 years. And it's going to start with the decree, and it's going to go 490 years. So the end of that 483 years, I'm, I'm probably going too fast with this, but anyway, the end of that 490-year period is not going to be to the end of the, it's got to have the full seven years, but 483 years is when the church age began, and the last seven years of the Jewish age is yet to come, and that is the tribulational period. And what we're looking at again is where does the church leave as opposed to where this tribulation is going to be. And that is exactly where we are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we have Paul saying, look, we're of the day. We are children of light. 
We are sons of light. We are not of the darkness. This is darkness. This is judgment. And Paul is saying, we believers are not of this. And we're going to see even more that we don't have anything to do with the tribulation. We're going to be out of here before the tribulation begins. And there's a lot of controversy. You have a post-millennial. You have amillennial. You have pre-tribbers, which is what we are. You have post-tribbers. You have mid-tribbers. It's all over the page, what people believe. And I hope that y'all aren't uh, wanting to get on, that you think I'm going too slow here. I'm being very deliberate so that you will be able, when someone comes up to you and they say, oh, what are you? Are you a uh, premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial? That you can stand up and look them in the eye and say, I am premillennial. Not only am I premillennial, Jesus Christ is going to come before the millennium. I am a pre-trib believer. And that means we are going to be out of here before the tribulation begins. And you should be able to explain to them why you believe that. And we've got all these, all the scriptures that we've been going through in 1 Thessalonians 5, the whole book. And then we go into 2 Thessalonians and that whole book. It, it just is very clear. You have to know that. You say, well, why does that make any difference? Well, what we're going to see tonight in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, is talking, verse 8 and 9, is talking about a hope, a hope to be delivered, that we're not going to go through the tribulation. And if you don't have that hope, then you're not looking for Christ. You're not, the, the imminency of the rapture is a hoax. And what we're looking for is the Antichrist and going through uh, at least maybe three and a half years of the most awful suffering and adversity that there's ever been. That's what we have to look forward to if we're not going to be delivered from it. In other words, if this is wrong, if this little you here going back up into heaven here should be placed over in here, they make a the big difference. Do you see why? Some people say, well, you still would be looking forward to Christ even if you were going through uh, half of the tribulational period. One-fourth of, tribu- one of the population is going to be dead by the time you get to the midpoint. Chances are you won't even make it through that. And that's not a hope that I have. And the Bible talks about the blessed hope And it talks about that we are going to be delivered from the wrath to come. That's what I'm showing you. And this kind of puts it more in perspective. Of course, at the end of this seven-year period, you have Jesus Christ returning at the second advent here. And then we have the thousand-year reign of Christ, the kingdom. I just thought I'd put that up there just to refresh everybody so we know what we're talking about and why what we're looking at is important. So now, please open your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 5. Wait, uh, ignore that. Ignore that. I decided we're going somewhere else. Go to Matthew 13.
Matthew chapter 13. You know, sometimes the hard thing to do when you know a subject and you can give a lot of details, when someone talks about a particular issue, for instance, when does a rapture take place, they want you to answer it in one sentence. Totally understandable where they, are, they have all the facts. And when you start trying to, to explain it to them, you have to use terms and you have to use language they don't even understand. And it's, it's a little bit hard to do that sometimes. And they don't want to stand there or sit there and listen to you uh, talk about the, the distinguishing characteristics that force the pre-trib uh, uh, idea. They just want you to sum it up in one sentence and that's it. Well, people like that really don't want to know the truth anyway. But we've got to do the best we can. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. This is a parable about the wheat and the tares. <clears throat> now, one thing that I'm going to tell you right off the bat, you're not going to find the church in here. This is in Matthew chapter 13. What did I tell you? This is still in the age of the Jews. Matthew 13 they didn't have a clue about the church age. And so if, this, if you try to interpret this, putting the church in there, they, the Lord might well have been talking in China, speaking in Chinese because they don't know what the, they had no frame of reference for the church. Just keep that in mind as we go through this. And it is a parable, a parabole. Verse 24, he, referring to Christ, presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you some of the keys right now as to what some of these things represent. <clears throat> we'll go over the explanation to them in uh, some other scriptures just shortly following this. But we might as well write them in now. The king is the representing... Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Just put capital J, capital C. He's the king. Now, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who... I'm sorry, I told you that it's the man, the man is uh, Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I start out, that's the kingdom. It's the man that's Jesus Christ who sowed good seed, good seed is represented by believers, in his field, and the field is the earth. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man, which is representative of Jesus Christ, who sowed good seed, which are believers, in his field, the earth. Just in case there's anybody out there without any Bible, I'm going to put it on the board for you.
I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it big enough for you to see it. Uh -huh. I'll give it a shot. Okay. You. I don't think you can see that over here, can you? This is it. Let me see if I can bring it over here. Well, I don't know how to make that the the whole thing bigger. Rydell, do you have uh, Bible Works? Do you have that program? Well, it was it was a try. It's, and I could bring it up on Librarians, but it takes too long. Um, I'll, I'll just go ahead. Verse 26. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Oh, 25, okay. But while men were asleep, or were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares. Now, the tares are unbelievers. And the men that were asleep are negative believers, cold believers. And the tares are unbelievers. And so, <clears throat> but while men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares, unbelievers, also among the wheat, and the wheat are believers, and went away. Did I, did, where's the enemy? Oh, yeah, enemy. Yeah, enemy, uh, thank you, is Satan. Satan's the enemy. So by, while the men were sleeping, that would be negative or cold believers, his enemy, Satan, came and sowed tares, unbelievers, among the wheat believers, and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner, the slaves are angels. And the landowner is, guess who? Jesus Christ. And so, and the slaves are the angels of the landowner Christ came and said to him, you have sir, but it should be Lord. Did you not sow good seed, the good seed uh, um, in, in your field? How then does it have tares? Of course, this is talking about believers and unbelievers. 28. And he said to them, an enemy, Satan, has done this. And the slave said to him, do you want us, uh, want us to gather to? Uh, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, "No. Lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them." Uh, I was reading some of the, uh, some of the commentaries on this, and they said the in that part of the world at that time the tares were called bearded darnels. And their root system would, would intertwine with the uh, wheat 
And it wasn't until they were mature that you could tell what was wheat and what was tares because they looked so much alike until they were mature. <coughs> and see, the, the idea behind this is there's always going to be people who look like believers, talk like believers, and yet are not believers. How many people in the world today fit that category? Billions, right? I can think of one particular religion that has about a billion of them. Anyhow, <clears throat> verse 30. He says, <clears throat> allow both of them to grow together until the harvest. Now, the harvest is the time of judgment. <clears throat> and in time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, this, will be, this is the angels, First, gather up the tares, which would be unbelievers, and bind them in bundles to burn. You might put a little notation there. Baptism of fire. That's what that's talking about. First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn, to burn them up. But gather the wheat, that would be the believers, into my barn. And that would be the... Believers going into the millennium. Does everybody have those keys so far? There, excuse me, there's a couple more parables there, but we won't drop down to verse 36 now. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. This is Christ speaking. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. That's what we have. And the field is the world. And as far as the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Verse 39, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Now, underline the end of the age. That is not the end of the church age. Remember I told you the church isn't found here. This is the end of the Jewish age. The end of the Jewish age is going to occur at the second advent. That's when the baptism of fire takes place. That's what this is referring to. That's what it's talking about here. Is when all unbelievers are going to be removed from planet Earth. Verse 40. Therefore, just as the tares, unbelievers, are gathered up and burned with fire, that would be the baptism of fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Christ himself is explaining what he was talking about. And the tares being gathered up by the reapers, which is the angels, is referring to what's going to happen at the end of the age, which is the second advent, not the rapture. Verse 41, For the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will be gathered out of his 
kingdom, all stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness. Those are all who are going to be unbelievers who have rejected the gospel. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43. Then the righteous, that would be those with imputed righteousness, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, those righteous ones, those that are left, are going to go forth into the kingdom, shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. That would be those at the end of the millennium who are believers. What's going to happen to them? They will go forth into the millennium. This says that they will uh, shine forth as the sun in the kingdom. He who has ears, let him hear. Do you all have ears? You'll have ears to hear. That is what's going to take place. Let me put this back up on the board for just one sec here. That is going to take place right here. That's the end of the age. And all those unbelievers are going to experience the baptism of fire. Go in your Bible back in Matthew. You're already in Matthew now, I presume. Go back to chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. This is at uh, re referring to Christ's baptism. And in verse 11, you have John the Baptist baptizing Jesus Christ. This is in Matthew 3.11. He says, As for me, that would be John the Baptist, I baptize you, Christ, with water. This says for, but the word there is ace and should be because of your repentance. But he's not baptizing Christ here. He's talking to the people that he is baptizing. He's, not, he's, he's about to baptize Christ. But he's talking to the people that he was baptizing, that he was baptizing them, identifying them with the kingdom. The kingdom was offered. The king was present. So he says, as for me, I baptize you with water because of your repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. It's talking about Christ. It says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is a real baptism. It is future. And fire. See that and fire? That's a baptism of fire. This is two real baptisms that were yet future. Now, this is early on. Do you think the people that he was talking to understood what he meant there? They had no idea what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was because this was something that is a church age. 
And they had no idea what he meant with, with the baptism of fire. How could they? This is written for our benefit so that we can connect the dots, so that we can have understanding of eschatology. The baptism of fire that he's talking about is, is expanded in the next verse. He says, and his winnowing fork, and, and his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the threshing fork. Do you all know what a winnowing fork is? Winning, winnowing fork looked like what we would call a pitchfork, but usually made out of wood. And they would have all the wheat on the threshing floor, and they would take that winnowing fork, and they would throw it up into the air. And the wind would cut the shaft, and it would be blown away, and then the wheat would fall back down on the floor. Do you get the picture of what's happening there? Do you see why that is illustrative of the baptism of fire? What happens at the baptism of fire? The chaff, the tares, are going to be taken away. And the wheat is going to remain on the earth, the believers. That's, he's giving them a, a wonderful illustration. I doubt that they understood it, but he's illustrating the baptism of fire that we just looked at in Matthew chapter 13. So he says, And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. See, the threshing floor would be earth. Thoroughly clean it. There's not going to be one unbeliever left on planet earth after Christ takes his winnowing fork and throws the tares and the shaft up into the air and the wind takes them away. And he will gather up his wheat. That would be believers there. Into the barn. That's illustrating of them going into the kingdom. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Y'all get it? One more. Go to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians <clears throat> Chapter One Verse Three We ought always to give thanks to our God for you, brethren as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak, speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Verse 6 now. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. 
You see, you begin to make the connection here. Those who afflict believers during the tribulation period are going to experience this Jesus Christ returning from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, does that sound like the rapture or does that sound like the second advent? Second advent, isn't it? Nothing about fire at the rapture. Dealing out, this is verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Those are the ones that's going to suffer under the baptism of fire. That means they're identified with fire. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. Underline that. On that day. You know what day that is? That's the narrow day of the Lord. That is the day that He returns. Second Advent. So, and... <clears throat> And these will pay penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Now we could go on, but I, what I'm showing you is some of the things that are going to take place when Jesus Christ returns. Now this is this is even this isn't in the gospels this is an epistle church has already has already started here for sure and yet he's talking about Christ's coming and it's not for us it's at the second advent Christ is coming two more times he's coming to get us and he's coming at the end of the age remember we just saw in in, in um Matthew 13 is coming at the end of the age. That is the Jewish age, and that's the second advent. So you have to rightly divide the word of truth to understand what he's talking about. Now, up here, we went over Matthew 13, 24 through 32. You can follow these notes if you like. The last seven years of the age of Israel will be a time of unparalleled suffering and tribulation. It is for Israel, not the church. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, is, it calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. That's Israel. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, Israel. The last seven of those weeks is going to be seven of the, of the 70 weeks is going to be seven years of the tribu tribulational period, which is for Israel, stiff-necked, rebellious, hard-hearted, unbelieving Israel, and the Gentiles that go along at that same time with her, who are unbelievers. The church is mentioned 19 times in Revelation chapters 1 through 3, because that's talking about the church on the earth. But from chapters 4 to 19, the church on earth is not found. Not one reference to the church, those in Christ, or the body of Christ can be found. 
Now, why is that? The answer is because all church-age believers will have been translated before chapter 4 begins. Did you see that translated? There's going to be church-age believers who are not going to get a resurrection body the way everyone else does. They're, they're going to be translated. That means you're going to go from what we have here. In other words, if Christ came before this, this Bible class is over, every one of us would be translated. This body would be instantly changed into a resurrection body. But it wouldn't be a body that is already dead coming out of the ground. Those aren't translated. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches is the phrase used seven times in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when the church is still on earth. You got that? A Revelation chapter 2. These are the places where you find this phrase. Just go to one. Go to Revelation 2.7 so you'll see what I'm talking about. That phrase, it must be an important phrase because it's used so many times. It's used seven times. Exact same phrase, and it's found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 is the first time. This same phrase is used seven times throughout. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see that? He's speaking to the church still on earth. Then you have the other phrases. Now, listen to this. It is not used again until Revelation chapter 13, verse 9. Just go there. Go to Revelation 13, verse 9 right now. Revelation 13, 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. What happened to the churches? Where's the churches? Why why didn't it say just like it does all these other ones that are given? You see, these other ones are all given in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 when the church is still on earth. By the time you get to verse 9, the term churches is left out. It's left out because they're not there. We're not there. No church-age believer is going to be there. I think that's pretty telling, don't you? Seven times it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. By the time you get to, after, by the time you get to chapter 4, the church is gone. So but certainly by the time you get to chapter 13, it says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And nothing about the church is there. <clears throat> Why are the churches not there? Because they won't be there. They're not found in the Bible because they're not found on the earth at that time. Here's another interesting point. 
Wouldn't it be odd if the church must go through the tribulation, the worst time of all history, about which the Bible gives 15 chapters of details, and yet the church is never mentioned? Now, if the church is going to go through the tribulation, isn't it odd that you go to Revelation? 15 chapters worth. Church never mentioned. No instructions. No warnings, nothing. Do you think God would do that? Do you think He would inspire the writers, or in this case, the writer, John, to write 15 chapters of detailed information, specific, and if His bride was going through it, not even mention it one time? Not one instruction to the church. In fact, church not even mentioned Sometimes you can tell a lot by what is not said, what is not mentioned. And that's this one of these cases. For those who think that the church is going to go through the tribulation and that Jesus would give us no instructions as what to do, that we're going to face the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, he would, he would merge us with another dispensation and not tell us how to operate. Does that sound reasonable? And to leave us completely out of 15 chapters of detailed information about that time? I think not. Just a thought. There are no Old Testament passages indicating that Old Testament saints will be translated. You get the, you get the importance of that? What is translated? That's going from a living body to a resurrected body. Instantly. Again, there are no Old Testament passages indicating that Old Testament saints will be translated. And you know why? They're not going to be translated. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, and it's describing, in the blink of an eye, you will be transformed. You, you, you all know the passages, or do we need to go there? Well, let's go there just for one second. I, 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 when in doubt, do it. <laughs> when I get a blank stare, I think, well, let's go. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. And who is this written to? The Corinthians, but what are they? Church-age believers. First Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This is a mystery doctrine that was never revealed before. This is the first time that this is given. Nobody knew about what a translation was about. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall, all, we shall not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Look at that, changed. We shall be translated, changed. What I'm telling you is that is a church age doctrine that is pertinent only to church age believers and there will be no one, no Old Testament believer that is going to be translated 
So if you look up here and I say, there's no Old Testament passages indicating the Old Testament saints will be translated. Why? Because the Old Testament saints, or at least the, the, the last seven years of the Jewish age, in which you're going to have no Christians there, those believers, when, when, when Jesus Christ comes, they're not going to be raptured. They're not going to be translated. They're going to just keep living in their human bodies right on into the millennium. This is another argument why Old Testament saints do not rise. They do, they're not raptured with the church. Only church age believers are going to be translated. Go to the Old Testament and start with Genesis and you can go all the way to Malachi and look for any indication of an Old Testament saint being translated, meaning they're going to be in a living body and, be, and then have a resurrection body, it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen for those believers in the tribulation. Because when Jesus Christ returns at the second advent, their body, the same, just like our bodies that we have here, they're going to have a body and they're going to go right into the millennium. This is only for us. It's only for the church and first... Corinthians 15 calls it a mystery. No one knew it until then. When Christ comes at the second advent, the believers surviving the tribulation will go into the millennium in their physical bodies. The translation of believers is called a mystery and is only for church-age believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52. If... The church was going to be raptured in the middle of the tribulation. Which it is not, but hypothetically. And you had church-age believers there. But then you also had believers who are designated only as Israel or Gentiles. You have no Christians there. That would put them in a classification similar to that of Old Testament believers, they're not church-age believers, they would have to be translated too, wouldn't they? If the rapture took place then. You, you following me? And if that was the case, it would probably be prophesied in the Old Testament somewhere. Because there's a lot of information, we were just reading some of it, if we go into the Old Testament about Jesus Christ returning at the second advent and what's going to happen there, there's plenty of information on that. So what I'm saying is we've already gone and saw the Scriptures that have to do with the Old Testament getting their resurrection body when? Second advent. Y'all remember all those Scriptures we went to? I could go back in my notes and we could go through them. That the, They're going to get their resurrection body at the second advent. Believers in the tribulation are going to get their what? They're not, going to get a, they're not going to be translated. They're not going to get a resurrection body. They're just going to live right on into the millennium. What's going to happen to all the unbelievers? Off the earth. At the rapture, what happens? Believers are gone. Unbelievers are left. Do you see the distinctions here? It was a mystery. It couldn't apply to anyone other than the church because it was a mystery up to that time. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. We're not tares. No, we're not tares. 
But even believers, what I'm trying to show you, believers that are not in this dispensation will not be translated. Only we are going to be translated. Is that a hand? Well, you have a real problem if you say that. If you say that the people of the that are going to be of going into the tribulation are going to be uh what you say considered church age believers, then you don't have you don't have anything in there. I just showed you there's nothing in the Bible indicating that there's the church is even going to be there. And if they were, here's the problem. This is the end, this is the last seven years of the Jewish age. That means they are essentially in that dispensation. And and the church age is unique. Only the church has the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Matthew chapter 3. We are in Christ. There's no other people of any dispensation that uh, that is in Christ. Only church age believers are. For instance, if you go, whenever the tribulation begins... And you are a Jew, and you believe in Christ, what happens? In the Jewish age, there was still a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But in the church age, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So which would it be? Are you all following me? What I'm telling you is the dispensations do not merge. It's impossible for them to merge. Because if you're a Jew in the church age, what are you? A Christian. If you are a Jew in the age of Israel, you're what? A Jew. You're still a Jew and there are distinctives and distinctions there. If you are in the age of the Jews and you believe in Jesus Christ, what are you? A believing Gentile. There is no, there is no Christians. There's no one in Christ. And so if you had believers going into the tribulational period and you had, a, 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 it didn't matter whether a Jew or a Gentile, but if, for instance, if you were a Jew, you would still be a Jew. You would have the, all, the holy days and all the other things, all the uh, Mosaic law that was going on. Now, I know that during the, during the tribulational period, there's a big, uh, there's a big, controversy over what's going to happen when the jews go back when 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 the tribulation begins and you have jews there we know that they are going to be in the temple and they're going to be making sacrifices because the bible says that that's that's what why they're going to have a, a a treaty with the antichrist but here's the question or here's the point i want you to consider Just because they're making the sacrifices, does that mean that God is encouraging it or condoning it? What happens in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10? When Christians, when believers, Jewish believers, were still making sacrifices after Christ made these sacrifices. What did Paul say? He says, as long as you continue that, there's no longer... uh, 
there's, there's no longer any, it's impossible to renew you again into repentance as long as you keep doing that. In other words, it was, it was forbidden to make sacrifices as a Jew after Christ made the sacrifice. Y'all understand that, right? Well, when you get to the tribulation, you're going to have Jews making sacrifices because they're going to go back to the Mosaic law. And the, and the question is, is God going to sanction that? Is He commanding that? How could He? He couldn't sanction that. Because any sacrifice made after Jesus Christ made the sacrifice is an abomination. Unless, like in the millennium, it's just a memorial, but they're not doing it as a memorial. They're, they're, they're going back to the Mosaic Law and they are working their way to heaven by observing the Mosaic Law and doing the, the sacrifices. That's another reason to demonstrate they are unbelievers. I probably shouldn't have dropped that on you right at the end here because I don't have time to explain it more. Not one in 10,000 believers could follow what I just told you because you have to understand dispensations. You have to understand what happened at the cross and that it is forbidden. It's abomination to make a sacrifice after Christ made the sacrifice. Why would you do that? That was looking forward to the cross. If you made a sacrifice after Christ went to the cross, it was tantamount to saying Christ's sacrifice didn't cut it. We have to continue making animal sacrifices. That is an abomination. And yet we know that they're going to be doing that right from the get-go in the tribulational period. And so you're going to have that demonstrates that they're unbelievers. And the church, if you were a church-age believer and you were in the midst of all that, you wouldn't know what to do. And you go for 15 chapters and there's not one word of instruction to you. Well, what's, this, what's the answer? Well, the answer is we're not going to be there. There's not going to be anyone in church age that is going to be in the tribulation because if, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you're Christians. Christians are not mentioned. Only you have Israel and Gentiles mentioned in Revelation. It all points to the fact that we are not going to be there. Pete, do you have something? Yeah. Right. Well, that, it just goes to show you again. That is another point to demonstrate that it's unbelievers that are going to be in the tribulation. There's no belief. Why would the whole purpose is God is going to punish unbelievers and he's going to put so much heat on them, in some cases, literally, that they're either going to believe or they're going to be eventually taken off earth by the baptism of fire. This is what it's going to take to wrestle back control of planet Earth because these are Christ rejectors. These are unbelievers. And it's for Israel. It's the last seven years of Israel. There's nothing but Israel and Gentiles mentioned. The church has never mentioned. And if the church did go into that dispensation, it would be a total chaos. You wouldn't know what to do. None of us would know what to do. And if somebody believed in Jesus Christ, well... 
are they uh, are they in Christ or are they a Jew? Like the, it says in them, but Jews and Gentiles there. What I'm trying to tell you, it would be a complete chaos, but it's not. we don't have to figure that out because we're not going to be there. God never merges the dispensations. There's a clear-cut distinction. On the day of Pentecost, the Jewish age was curtailed. It was put in on hold. And when the church leaves and the tribulational period begins again, then the last seven years is is unfolding. You don't merge anything. It's never merged. I got another... Uh, I, well, it's after time. I, I'm getting, I, I don't mean to go past time, but it just... Can you say that till next time? Can you remember your question? Okay, we'll get the question next time. I'm trying to have better time management. I went over about 20 minutes Sunday... Uh, I didn't know. Actually, for me, it's about the same because I teach an hour here. And actually, Sunday, what I did was teach about an hour because usually it takes about 10 or 15 minutes before I even start teaching. I don't know what that has to do with anything, so we'll just close. <laughs> oh, boy. Father, we're so thankful for your word and for your spirit that gives us the understanding of it. Sometimes this seems complicated. There's a lot of factors involved, but it's very important for us to be able to take all the pieces of this puzzle and put them together properly where we can get a clear view of what you have told us with regards to this horrible time coming that you have delivered us from the wrath to come. And we are eternally thankful for that. And we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And that means we have to understand all these factors to where we are able to understand them, uh, to tell others to where they can understand them. And that takes meditation, it takes repetition, and it takes study in order to show ourselves approved. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.